0: Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the Special Needs Survival Podcast. Okay, it's Special Needs Awareness Month. How exciting. So as a special benefit and treat for all of us in the disability community, I am doing a series of webinars, and those webinars are once a week on Wednesdays at 5 30 p.m. Eastern Time. You can go and sign up for them by going to our specialneedscompanies.com website. You don't have to attend in person. You can actually get the recording later, but you can only do that if you sign up and enroll. Now, if you don't want to do that, that's cool too. I am going to do all four. Of those webinars as podcasts here this month. I'm super excited about it. The topics are disability benefits and planning. That's a basic estate and special needs planning course. Um, The second one will be on transition planning. Super excited to do that. As you know, that's my jam. And the third one will be a program that I do called Voice and Choice. And it's all about figuring out how to do person-centered planning and person-centered approaches when it comes to assisting and supporting legal decision-making. So that is also a fun one. And last but not least, we are going to do a program on special needs trust administration or disability trust administration. Many, many of you out there are already acting as a family member or close uh, family supporter trustee, or you've been nominated and you know that someday you will want to do that. There are so many people who choose to continue on in that family member role or that close family friend role as the trustee, rather than hiring a um a trustee who is a professional, like an attorney or a, um, an accountant or an investment advisor, um, but you need some additional support, even if you are fantastic at numbers, understand tax, no investments. Those are just the tip of the iceberg of what a special needs trustee must do. So I used to run these programs in person. For many, many years and then of course the pandemic hit and everything just reorganized itself. So now doing everything online, loving it because we get five to 10 times the number of people who come and this is my contribution and my gift to the disability community. I hope that you find these programs packed full of information, support and advice. And that it helps you have discussions with the people that are in your circle of care, whether that is your accountant, your own attorney, whether that's your family members, your support professionals, whoever is on your team that, you know, having this underlying knowledge, knowing the terminology, really having that base for building a life and building a team will I think ultimately, I really like can almost guarantee ultimately support you in your endeavors, coming to the table to network, negotiate, um, and, and plan for and communicate with and organize around disability issues. It's, it's just ultimately, Superior, you know, having the additional information being trained and, and, and feeling confident is going to get you that much further on the road to your goals. Okay. So having said that, um, let's get started. Of course, this podcast, as you know, does not, it does not constitute legal advice, does not form an attorney client relationship with me, even though I am an attorney. And, you know, by reading this material or listening to this podcast, um, me as the author does not assume any liability for loss or damage due to reliance on this material. What does that mean? That's my little legal disclaimer, but it means that this is for informational purposes only. You take this information that is generic and you apply it to your situation and then you take it to your team with your questions. Hopefully, by the time you get through this podcast and this presentation, you will know and be able to narrow down what those questions really are. This will help you save time and money. Okay, so when I start talking about estate planning with people, I always ask, what is estate planning? And most people, when they're asked this question, will immediately think one of two things. Well, it's something about taxes, or it's it's about my will. So there's so much more to it than that. Those two things can play a part, can can be a factor, but that is not ultimately all that we have. So what is estate planning? It's, It's a roadmap to get to a set of goals that you have established. Now, those sets of goals that you are establishing are going to be flexible in time. They're going to change over time. The goals that you set for your family today, where your children are five, seven, and nine are going to be very different than the goals that you set when you're trying to get your kids launched into adulthood, when they are 20, 22, and 24, and when you are trying to retire And your children are in their 30s, maybe, or 40s, even. This is, you know, a, this is a flexible process. Learning how to work through this process is your number one goal. You want to be prepared and understand how to reset your goals or recalibrate your goals and how to map a plan to get there. If you don't plan, then your probate court judges get a big say in what happens to your people and your stuff. People that you don't want or don't know may be put in charge of your assets or your, your people, your loved ones. Your state legislature has provided an estate plan for you. Assets can end up with people that you don't expect. There are foregone opportunities potentially to save taxes and also protect assets for your loved ones. So we plan to have a say, a big say, in what happens to us, our loved ones, and our stuff, our assets. And that is when we can't, whether we become disabled, incapacitated, or pass away, which we are all going to do at some point, then your plan is going to kick in and take action. So what are some of the most common estate planning documents? When we've talked about, this is a roadmap to a set of goals, but documents help us get there. They're a part of the plan. They are not the plan. They are a part of the plan, the roadmap too. So clearly there's a will. Everything starts with your will. That's kind of the foundation of your plan. But it is the least important document that you're going to sign, believe it or not. Trusts are going to be, for most people who have a disability or have someone with a disability in their life, trusts are going to play a part. Durable powers of attorney, healthcare proxies, or what's known as medical durable powers of attorney, And HIPAA authorizations, those are medical record releases. Those three documents together are known as your incapacity documents, what happens and how decisions get made when you are unable to do so anymore. And then for most of you, you're going to have an appointment or nomination of guardians and conservators for minor children and adult disabled children as well. Okay, so that's the roadmap. That's our documents. Let's start out with that initial document called our will. What does a will do? It may surprise you to know that wills really started out as a way to do two things. Transfer title to property assets that you own when you die to the next owner. A a piece of property, whether it's real estate or personal property, like a bank account, a stock certificate, they cannot want for an owner. There must be a designated owner. And we have to provide a system for how that happens. How do we pass title to any type of asset or property that we own? And it also let's creditors know that you have died and that they need to come and collect their debts before the assets get distributed out to the heirs. So those are the two things that primarily the probate process and having a will does. It it sets title for new owners of your stuff and It also alerts creditors. It's a notice process. In addition to that, a will is going to specify distributions, who gets what and how. And it's going to appoint or nominate rather a personal representative, otherwise known as an executor, who will be there to be sure that the terms set in your will are followed it may also possibly nominate guardians and conservators of minor or incapacitated children. So a will goes through probate or goes through the probate process. This is a process that is public. And as we mentioned previously, gives notice to creditors also gives notice to heirs and is basically certified by the court. The process is started and completed in your local probate court. So many people believe that avoiding probate, not going through that process is the most important estate planning objective. And they believe this because it can take a long time. Depending on your state statutes, most probates are gonna take at least a year. And these days, With our probate courts all backed up, we're looking at sometimes two or three years to close a probate estate. Also, it can be expensive. Most people have a difficult time doing this without an attorney to help them or an accountant or somebody. And there are filing fees associated as well. So I can understand why people feel that avoiding probate would be their primary goal of their estate plan, Uh, it's actually the least important goal. It's still a goal. And many of us really plan with that as part of our set of goals. But sometimes we deliberately want a probate. We want things to go through probate and end up in a different place. That's not true for every plan, but it's important to understand what the probate process does and what we accomplish by using it. The most important thing, though, what really matters in your planning is to maximize your odds of getting the most of what you want, you know, accomplishing the most goals that you can and the least of what you don't want. If you follow that rule and then employ the tools that we're talking about today, that will get you there. Just want a little side note here about working with attorneys. It's really important that you come to your professionals with as much knowledge as you can. If you don't have it, that's okay. You want to work with somebody that makes you feel confident that you trust and that whose advice you you can really count on every person is going to feel differently about what they need from their attorney. I want to caution you against feeling like you need your attorney to teach you what all the rules are and to explain the entire probate process to you. It is so much more important that you spend your dollars, your legal fee dollars. And most of us have limited budgets for this sort of thing in just collecting data points and passing them back and forth and understanding and communicating what the next steps are at each step of the way. Of course, that's going to mean some explanation from your counsel or from your professional. But more importantly, you want to just be sure that the process keeps moving and that your attorney and their team are responsive to you. So um, that was just a little you know, bit of advice about finding the attorney that works with your style really well and making sure that you're allowing them to do their job and make the decisions for you and take care of a lot of things. There are going to be many times where an attorney will ask you, Would you like to handle this or would you like us to handle this? Knowing that many people are on a budget. So don't be offended. They're not trying to pass the buck or pass the work on to you. They're just being very thoughtful and cost efficient with your money. All right, let's talk a little bit more about the probate process. It starts with a petition to have a will allowed or to open a probate if there is no will. and then. An appointment of that personal representative or executor, um, depending on what it's called in your state. That petition is the document that opens your case in court and starts the process in court. And then the personal representative, once they are appointed, begins the process of inventorying and marshaling or gathering all of the assets in the estate. Remember, we're going to talk about in a minute what those assets are that are inside the estate. Next, they need to give notice to creditors, heirs at law, and beneficiaries of the estate. If there are any, they'll pay income and estate taxes and prepare those tax returns, pay any appropriate debts of the decedent, and you're going to need to understand what that statute looks like in your state, because it's going to be a little different in every state. And also make distributions to the beneficiaries when the estate is ready to close. At the end, file an official account and close the estate in court. So what assets actually flow through probate or, or are determined by your will? These distributions uh, through your will um, will be... So, so your will will control most some little or none of your assets at death. I know that's very explanatory, Annette. Um, but it's important to understand what probate assets are. Your will is only going to control those assets that you own individually at your death. And you're going to find out what I mean by that next. So in order to figure out what assets will be determined to go through your probate process, it's easier to actually look at what non-probate assets are. So what assets will not be controlled by your will? First and foremost, any assets that are owned jointly with one or more surviving owners. We call these assets um, joint ownership with survivorship, okay? So think about this, a bank account that you might have with your spouse, your parent, your sibling, and it says, you know, Annette Hines and Mark Worthington. If Annette Hines dies, Mark Worthington owns 100% of that asset. It's joint ownership. If you own a home and the deed says joint with rights of survivorship, then any owners remaining after one owner dies still own the entire property. If you have a stock account, anything, anything that you own jointly, your accessible van, anything you own jointly passes to the surviving joint owner. The next asset that most people think about are any assets with a death beneficiary designation and with living takers. Okay, let's talk about those two categories. These are generally known as contract assets, because by contract, the designation of a beneficiary or a next taker is in the document itself is in a contract itself. So first, some accounts, bank accounts and investment accounts have a pay on death, a transfer on death an in trust for and a death beneficiary designation. And that person who's designated is still alive when you die, they survive you. Now, other assets that are very familiar to most of you are gonna be things like life insurance, an IRA or other qualified retirement plans like a 401k plan, a 403b plan, annuities, some brokerage accounts and CDs and some US savings bonds. Those have designated contracted beneficiaries. They go by um, a contract where you've named the next beneficiary or where there is by document or by plan design, a set of next takers. Okay. There's also something called life estates, which I'm not going to go into great detail about. And here's why we're talking today. Assets owned by trusts. Assets owned by trusts do not go through probate, are not designated by your will. And they pass title inside the trust itself. And they're going to go by what the trust says. So trusts are not just for Rockefellers anymore. They have many purposes and there are many kinds of trusts. If you fund a trust, those assets that are funded and owned now by the trust will avoid probate. They are not going to be um, distributed by the terms of your will. Trusts allow you to manage assets during lifetime and even long after your death. Some trusts can provide asset protection. Some trusts provide protection of irresponsible or vulnerable beneficiaries from themselves. And sometimes, as we said, an asset protection from outsiders. It may reduce estate taxes or eliminate them altogether. A trust may plan for long-term care needs and a disabled person's access to public benefits may provide for charitable intentions and many more, many more things. One of the questions that comes up when we start planning is, you know, who can be a trustee? Who should I pick as a trustee? Trustees can be just about anybody. (laughs) They can be yourself in some circumstances, family members, which are often a go-to, friends, professionals, such as accountants, attorneys like me, um, investment advisors. They can be institutional trustees like a bank or a trust company sometimes beneficiaries can be their own trustee and sometimes guardians can be the trustee and can wear multiple hats so we'll talk about that a little bit in a few minutes the most common trust that people have in their estate plan is called the revocable living trust the rlt some people just say living trust but living trust can have multiple meanings Sometimes that is advanced directives and planning for your healthcare needs, but a revocable living trust affectionately known as the RLT um, is really our most common trust. And many, many, many people will incorporate this into their estate plan. It's a great option for most of you. It provides for centralized asset management during your lifetime, and it's readily accepted by financial institutions as opposed to trying to use a durable power of attorney. Unfortunately, it cannot manage IRAs and other qualified retirement plans, not during your lifetime. Um, In addition, it avoids probate if it's funded, if assets are retitled to this trust that is what funding means then they will not pass according to your will and they will not go through the probate process again just a reminder why do we like avoiding probate because it's probate is a public process trusts are private only the parties to the trust get to know what's happening and what assets are inside that trust and who inherits them so this really appeals to most of us. It's possible that your RLT can avoid or um, eliminate or or minimize estate taxes. That estate tax reduction is for married couples. In my state, in Massachusetts, we are one of only two states left with this very low $1 million threshold. Um, The federal threshold this year is up to over $12 million for an individual and $24 million for a couple. In 2026, although it is indexed for inflation in 2026, we are scheduled to uh, snap back to approximately $6 million. It's hard to know what's going to happen politically with the estate tax it's often a pawn in trying to get other things passed in a financial bill or an, a tax bill. So as we discussed, the RLT can provide for a succession of management, meaning it get, you can give a list of trustees. It can be extremely flexible. If it's not impractical, we can draft just about anything that you can dream up we don't often recommend that you get too fancy with these trusts, but it can, be, it can be that. It can provide for lifetime asset protection, divorce protection, public benefits protection for your grandchildren and grandchildren. It can eliminate or minimize estate taxes as we've discussed. Um, in addition, I wanna tell you what it cannot do. So we've talked about what it can do, but what doesn't it do? So it doesn't provide asset protection for the creator and funder of the trust. That's you. That means that you cannot use this trust for the nursing home is going to take all my money. This is not that kind of a trust or that kind of a plan. This trust is you. It is not a taxable event. You Pay taxes on all of your assets owned by this trust in the same way that you paid taxes as an individual person owning these assets. This makes life with an RLT much simpler. It doesn't protect against costs of long-term care. So we mentioned nursing homes, but also trying to access public benefits yourself. This trust is going to still be accountable asset because you have. 100% control over it. It doesn't save estate taxes for single persons. We do have that need to be a married couple in order to save those estate taxes. And it doesn't affect the creator's income taxes. All right, so that's the RLT. An RLT is considered an incapacity document if you fund it with your assets because. After you become incapacitated and you cannot manage those assets anymore, you don't need a power of attorney agent to manage those assets. Anything in the trust will be managed by the trustee. However, your other incapacity documents, as I mentioned, are going to be a durable power of attorney, which is over financial decisions, a healthcare proxy or a medical durable power of attorney, which is over healthcare decision-making, and a HIPAA authorization, which is sharing of medical records and information. It is not a decision-making document. The durable power of attorney is a present power that is concurrent with the principal. The principal is the person who signs the, the document and who gives their authority over to their agent. A principal can revoke this document and can overrule decisions at any time so long as they have capacity to do so. Authority ends at the death of the principal. This is a lifetime decision-making document, not a document for planning after death. Even with a revocable living trust, it's important to have a power of attorney because there are certain assets that an RLT cannot own. Again, those 401ks and IRAs, You must have a robust list of successor agents and attorneys, in fact. And most powers of attorney are cookie cutter, meaning that somebody's getting them off the internet or your attorney's just processing the same POA over and over again for every person. That means that there might be key powers missing, or it may not be drafted appropriately for you. Many, many people are going to be fine with a stock document, but not everybody. So it's important to understand what you're getting and what you need. A medical um, durable power of attorney or healthcare proxy, depending on what your state calls it, is generally a springing power. The authority that a healthcare agent has is effective when an attending physician notes in a medical record that the principal is unable to make or communicate an informed medical decision. It's not usually effective for day-to-day decision-making. It is effective for a singular decision in time that is too much for a person to to, um, evaluate and make a decision on or where somebody has slipped over the line to incapacity to make any decisions. Think about dementia. The hospital fill in the blank forms that you get are effective in 99% of cases. The attorneys that draft these are you know, drafting much better documents, but not everybody needs that. So it's important that you have something instead of nothing. HIPAA authorizations were effective April 15th, 2003, and it authorized doctors, hospitals, and other medical professionals, including health insurance companies to speak with and share information with people that you specify in this document. It's a concurrent authority document. Why do you need this if you already have a healthcare proxy? Because many states or many providers Don't look at the HIPAA release information that you have in your healthcare proxy as controlling. There are some providers and some states that feel that you need a separate signed document under the statute in order to have medical records releases be effective. There are other health-related documents, such as living wills, other advanced directives, DNRs, anatomical gift forms, but that's beyond the scope of what we can talk about today. And also, we have documents under uh, Uniform Probate Code states, like Massachusetts, that allow, in their writing, an appointment, not merely a nomination, for guardians for minor children to take effect on your incapacity or death. So this is subject to subsequent ratification in probate court. You still have to go to court, but the document appoints and the probate court cannot, um, cannot circumvent that unless they have a reason to under their carry or quarry checks. It can also nominate guardians for incapacitated adult children and nominate conservators for minor and incapacitated adult children to be effective not only at death, but also in the event you become incapacitated. In traditional states, not UPC states, nominations are only effective at death and therefore you do your nomination by will. Being able to have a separate writing for when you become incapacitated gives you the flexibility to really thoroughly plan for who is going to take over all of these various roles, especially for your adult incapacitated children. It is so important to know if you're in a UPC state or not. Now let's talk about special needs trusts. They come in two flavors. You probably know this. There are um, third-party trusts, and first-party trusts. And how we know what, what type of trust we need is we take a look at where the assets are coming from. Who is funding this trust? A third-party SMT is funded with other people's money, not the disabled person's own money. And a first-party SMT we sometimes call that a D4A trust named after the social security regulation that allows it to be a non-countable asset is funded only with the disabled person's own money generally. If you put disabled person's money or first person money into a third party SNT, you will have forever tainted that trust. You really have to be careful and thoughtful when you are managing special needs trusts. A first party trust, however, can hold other people's money. It is just not always the right choice to do so. So why are special needs trusts so important for estate planning? Well, because they protect assets for vulnerable beneficiaries, both from themselves and from others. You get creditor protection, divorce protection, and asset protection in a third-party trust. You will not get that in a first-party trust because it's the same principle as your RLT. The law does not provide for you to be able to take your assets and shelter them away from your creditors. That would be really unfair. There are a few states that have domestic asset protection trusts for your own money and your own asset protection. Massachusetts is not one of them, and they are really complicated to set up. It is unlikely to be the type of trust that you will use in your planning if you have a disabled person that you are trying to benefit. Now, in addition, and the real reason people often come to special needs trusts is that it helps us with public benefits asset tests. So many public benefits, not all, have an asset threshold. You can only own up to $2,000 in assets. Otherwise, you will not be financially eligible for this benefit. That is mainly some Medicaid benefits, not all, mostly where there is a waiver, a federal waiver involved, and SSI, not SSDI. So what makes a special needs trust so special? For a first party trust, the person must have a disability. Third party trusts that's not necessary, but it's generally true. Both trusts must have supplement, but not supplant language. That means that you are stating in the trust document that the intention of this trust is not to provide general support, but instead it will supplement any public benefits that a person may be eligible for. So does that mean that you can never distribute when it will have an effect or an impact on a public benefit that somebody is receiving? No, no way. Your trust distribution scheme or distribution standards should be flexible. Sometimes it's okay to impact public benefits. You don't wanna tie a trustee's hands. For example, you may want to allow somebody the um, assets from the trust to pay for a vacation. It's nearly impossible to provide for all of the potential expenditures on a vacation By having the trustee pay it directly, it is possible that a third party could put all of these things on their credit card and the trustee could reimburse them. But generally speaking, trying to rent a rental car and trying to have spending money for restaurants and food, in addition to paying for plane tickets or gasoline for a car trip or, you know, a hotel or a motel. Those things are are quite difficult to pay entirely through the trust as the trustee making direct payment and direct distributions. You may need to distribute cash and accept that in that month, a person may not get an SSI payment. They may be disqualified for a payment in that month. It's not going to kick them off public benefits altogether for the most part. So those are the decisions that a trustee needs to be able to make. You need to give them the flexibility and don't tie their hands to make the decisions about distributions that are for the benefit and for the best benefit for your beneficiary. What else? The discretionary standard that I just mentioned Many other types of trusts have something called a HEMS standard, H-E-M-S, Health Education Maintenance and Support. However, that standard gives your beneficiary a demand right. They can demand a distribution from your trustee. If there is an ability to demand a distribution for support, most public benefits are going to disqualify that trust. There should never be an opportunity for a beneficiary to demand a distribution from you as the trustee. You instead need to have what we call a wholly discretionary standard. The trustee has the absolute discretion to make a distribution or not make a distribution in their opinion, in their their judgment. This is the type of thing that keeps parents up at night because if your trustee can deny any distribution and it doesn't need to be equitable, fair, follow any standard of care, they can deny somebody food, shelter, etc. It means that you have to be very sure that you've picked the right trustee or the right trustee succession plan so that you can benefit your child or other person in the way that you intend it to. You want to make sure that the beneficiary gets what they need from this trust. This is a sticky, sticky conversation in selecting a trustee. And in addition, lastly, there must be a spendthrift clause. And that means that the trust assets cannot be alienated, cannot be available to a creditor of the beneficiary. So that is going to be for the third-party trust only. So is an SNT right for your situation, for yourself, for your child? So often people will say, well, my person or myself, not on benefits now. So I don't think I need a special needs trust. Well, SNTs, especially third-party ones, are just the best thing since sliced bread and you don't really know what the future is going to hold. You can use that trust as a general support trust. Remember the trustee has absolute flexibility and absolute discretion. So if if distributing cash on a monthly basis like a support trust would, is not going to impact public benefits or is the right decision for your beneficiary Your trustee can do that. Um, Really, your trust, if it's drafted flexibly, can operate in any manner that it needs to for the beneficiary. So the stigma of having, quote, a special needs trust or a disability trust, um, I don't fall for that. There is no stigma attached to this. It may not feel right. And in all the years I've been practicing and it's a long time, I've only ever had one person reject the special needs plan for that reason. Most of our folks have already been in the disability world. They receive special programming or are are receiving other types of disability benefits. And they are well known to the disability community. They have diagnoses, they've been on an IEP, all of those things. This is no further stigmatizing than anything else that has been done. And you don't have to call it a special needs trust or a disability trust. You can call it John Smith Trust. Um, Lastly, people often say, well, trusts are expensive, difficult and burdensome. So I'm halfway there with you on this. It doesn't need to be so bad, but their benefit far outweighs the expense of setting them up and managing them. And if you pick the right trustee, they don't have to be difficult and burdensome. So as we talked about third-party SMTs are primarily funded with other people's money and usually it's used in parents' estate planning. It's intended to provide supplemental funds for living expenses not covered by other income sources. Anyone can establish this third-party SMT and there's no age restriction to establish it or fund it. This is important when we talk about first-party trusts. It's living and that means other people can contribute to it. They may not, maybe they shouldn't contribute to it, but um, that's something to discuss with your advisor. And the trustee, if it's drafted properly, will have sole and absolute discretion over the distributions. On the other hand, contrast this with a first party trust, which is often known as the D4A trust. This trust cannot be established by just anybody. It must be established by, or created by, a disabled beneficiary themselves, a parent, a grandparent, or a legal guardian, If you don't have those people um, who have the ability to do it, then you need to go to court and get a court order to establish and fund it. It's funded with assets of the disabled person. And very often these are things like uh, a personal injury settlement, uh, an estate planning mistake, meaning that you were, you know, named individually instead of having a trust named in someone's will or someone's trust, you know, your great aunt Estelle really wanted to leave you $50,000 because she knows that you struggle in life. And she didn't realize that she needed to name a trust instead of naming you individually. So now you have to fund your first party trust with assets that you already have title to. Sometimes there are after discovered assets Um, meaning, you know, savings bonds or an annuity or something like that. And you're applying for public benefits or you're already on public benefits. And social security does a social security number sweep every few years. And they find these things that are titled to you and that are attached to your social security number. And you need to do something with them. Sometimes you can't spend all your SSI or SSDI money or you get a large back payment those can go into a a self-settled trust. Child support or alimony under certain conditions can be court-ordered to go into your self-settled D4A trust. And there are other things that can be done as well. The unfortunate pieces of a D4A trust that people tend to um, name as issues why they shy away from using them are that they have some uh, pretty intense um, rules around them. If you think about it, if the government's going to allow you to take your own money and fund a D4A trust or a self-settled trust and then qualify for the government to pay for some basic necessities of life for you, whether it's housing or health care or um, giving you an, an income payment through social security, They're going to establish some hardy rules around this. One of them is estate recovery or payback provisions. And within your D4A trust, you have a contracted lien with any state that has paid Medicaid benefits on your behalf. Also, this trust must be funded, established and funded prior to age 65. And believe me, every week I have potential clients coming to me wanting to establish a self-settled special needs trust. And they're over age 65 because their 90-year-old parent or 95-year-old parent has just died and they've inherited some money or other things. Also... There, If you don't have enough money or don't want an individual trust, because maybe you don't have a trustee that could work with you, you can establish a pooled trust. That's known as a D4C trust. And we have them in every state. Your pooled trust is going to have different rules about that age 65. In Massachusetts, we can still establish a pooled trust for people over age 65. Not many states allow that. So what are the trustees' responsibilities? And we've talked a little bit about this, but let's review it again so that we can select our perfect trustee. So trustees of any trust are responsible for investing and managing assets. Usually, we are hiring professional people to do that, not playing stockbroker ourselves. They determine the distributions and distribute out to beneficiaries or on behalf of beneficiaries. And those will follow the terms of the trust. More about that in part four of this series. They keep the books and records, file tax returns. Generally speaking, they are going to hire an accountant to do that. And so those are the the general um, trustee duties for any trust. But what a special needs trust trustee does that's different or on top of those other requirements, those other duties are will often hire advocates and care managers and and bring in other resources as needed for the disabled beneficiary. And in addition to that, they will need to understand what impact each and every distribution will have as they decide how to distribute, whether to pay directly for something or to distribute cash to the beneficiary, et cetera, they need to understand the impact those distributions have on the beneficiary's public benefits programs. Every single public benefit program has a different set of rules around eligibility that include how they look at trusts in general and the assets in the trust and how they look at distributions from that trust. So that's a lot of work, unfortunately, that people need to um, be aware of. So selecting an SNT trustee is really gonna be the hardest part of your planning. Parents often need guidance with this and often get teary and frustrated because it's scary. Remember I told you that that person or that institution will have sole and absolute discretion over what they distribute for. And they could decide to distribute nothing. Many uh, people will look at certain options as we talked about your other children. So siblings are a go-to for most people, but that can be burdensome. We're very often suggesting that people look at siblings as trust protectors Maybe that's, you know, you can think about that as like oversight, but not having day-to-day responsibility. And then there's good old Uncle Bob, who's really good with money, and he did great in the stock market all these years. But that may not be an appropriate investment strategy for a trust. Just because it's good for Uncle Bob does not mean that it's good for your disabled beneficiary. Banks and trust companies, they come with their own pros and cons. And professionals like me, accountants, attorneys, investment advisors also come with their own pros and cons. So you need to sit down with your advisor and really talk this through. Sometimes we consider best practices that we have a family member in addition to a professional trustee. And we talk about that trust protector role, that oversight role, where they have the ability to review what's going on in the trust, and to talk to the professional trustee. But they can also remove and replace that trustee with another professional if they are feeling and finding that the relationship is not working out. So we will often recommend that people look at that structure. It's not the right structure for everybody. And you will know what's right for your family. You should have a deep list and think about every contingency, including who's going to have the power to remove and replace a trustee if they are not working out. And again, only you know what's best for your family. So, what funds these trusts? What goes into these trusts? And, you know, it's pretty much anything um, real estate, cash and investments, inherited retirement plans, not retirement plans while the original owner is still alive, life insurance and other assets as well. But you want to think about what should not go into a trust. And that would be assets that are, um, hard to value, hard to sell that don't further the, the, um, goals of the trust to take care of the beneficiary, for example. So you know that Monet painting that's hanging in your hallway? Yes, I know you have one of those. Then that is not going to be the best asset to sit in a special needs trust. You're really going to want to sell those things so that you can have cash that works for your beneficiary. Recent developments um, that I want to mention briefly are the rise of ABLE accounts and the SECURE Act that went into effect December 20th, 2019, but also that we've had updated regulations about. So what are ABLE accounts? They are not trusts. That's important for you to know. But they can be a great additional tool in your toolbox. Congress enacted the ABLE Account Act in 2014, and the goal was to mimic a self-settled Medicaid payback trust only without lawyers and the overhead of trusts. It's a convenient place to park assets in excess of your $2,000 asset limit for some of your public benefits. Only one ABLE account allowed per eligible individual or per social security number, as you may think about it that way. And you must have been disabled prior to age 26. Why age 26? We don't know, but that's what the statute says. There's a contribution limit. This year, no more than $16,000 from all sources, and that gets titrated up. It's scheduled to go up to $17,000 next year, plus up to $12,880 if working more in Alaska and Hawaii um, this year. And that amount is tied to the federal annual gift tax exclusion limit, and the working number is tied to another calculation and may be adjusted periodically to account for inflation. All funds are non-countable for Medicaid purposes. Only the first 100,000 is non-countable for SSI purposes. The reason that we say these ABLE accounts are so brilliant is because you get a triple benefit. The money goes in penalty-free, transfer penalty-free and tax-free. The earnings inside are non-taxable. So as your account is earning money, that's non-taxable. And when they come out, if they come out for qualified disability expenses, the distributions or the money that you take out Including the income that's built up in there are also non taxable. This is different than special needs trusts. You'll learn more about taxation of special needs trusts if you listen into the fourth segment of these podcasts. So, qualified disability expenses, as we mentioned, were in- are income tax free. They're not income for public benefits purposes. And the only rule is that housing expenses must be used in the same month as the month it's distributed to avoid it counting against you. These accounts like a self-settled trust also though have a payback provision in them and there will be payback but only for medical assistance since the date the account was established unlike a self-settled trust which is for medical assistance for your entire lifetime, even if you had only established the trust the month before and then you died. So these have much more favorable rules associated with them, but they are not trusts and they're not going to be able to do everything that trusts can do, including the fact that qualified disability expenses are not everything. They're almost everything, but they're not everything. So what's new in 2020? Um, 2020, we had new ABLE regulations and we learned further who can establish an ABLE account. The final regulations created a hierarchy called an an eligible individual or the person selected by the eligible individual. So if it eligible individual is unable to establish the ABLE account, the following persons in descending order of priority may establish the account. First and foremost, an agent under a durable power of attorney, then a conservator or a guardian, then a spouse, then a parent, after all of those people, then a sibling, then a grandparent, and then a social security representative payee. We were all surprised by that last one. We had no idea that that was going to be there. Another thing that's really neat is that an ABLE account may be used to pay for post-mortem expenses before Medicaid is paid back. It can also pay for qualified disability expenses that are incurred before death, but not paid by the time somebody has passed away. And it can even pay for these funeral expenses even, even if they're not contracted for prior to death. Under a D4A self-settled trust, you cannot pay for anything, including funeral expenses, once your person has passed away. Only the expenses necessary to close up the, the trust, which would be estate taxes and some professional fees. So that is new and really helpful. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the SECURE Act, and then let's close up for today. So this affects post-mortem required minimum distributions from retirement plans, which are IRAs, 401k plans, 403b plans, 457s, etc., for all deaths after 2019. So that's 1-1-2020 and beyond no more annual required minimum distributions over the lifetime expectancy of the designated beneficiary allowed. Instead, everything has to come out in 10 years. That's because the government was tired of waiting for their money. And we were super clever with our drafting of trusts in being able to stretch out that required minimum distribution for as long as possible. The The smaller the amount of money that's required to come out every year, the lower the level of taxes that we pay, the more compressed that required minimum distribution scheme is, then the higher level of taxes we are going to pay because there's a huge difference between distributing out $1,000 a year and distributing out $100,000 a year. That $100,000 is going to bump many of our people into a whole different tax bracket. There are six exceptions that can still be used for a life expectancy um, distribution scheme for required minimum distributions. A surviving spouse, minor children, a disabled or chronically ill person, or um, a qualified special needs trust. So most people who are disabled or chronically ill are not going to be able to have this money or this income stream distributed directly to them. And they're going to need a special needs trust so that the income and the asset are not disqualifying for them. So why does this matter? Withdrawals from retirement plans are almost always 100% taxable ordinary income. Third-party trust hit that maximum federal income tax rate of 37% at a mere $12,950 of retained annual income. So that is income that is not distributed or spent on the beneficiary. If you're an individual, you max out at that rate at $518,000 plus of income if you're single or $622,000 plus if you're married filing jointly. You can see the huge difference in the way that individuals pay tax at the uh, maximum federal rate versus trusts. And this is particularly impactful for third-party trusts. And you are only going to inherit these retirement plans through um, to a third party trust, not a self-settled trust. So having said that, hopefully you understand what a huge benefit stretching out that required minimum distribution over the lifetime of a person who has a disability or some kind of special healthcare need, chronically ill need. And we can use a special needs trust to stretch that required minimum distribution over their lifetime without impacting public benefits. So that is why we love the Secure Act carve out for special needs trusts. You are getting preferred tax treatment. Okay. So that is our presentation today. I know I could have spent 3 4 more hours talking to you about all of this stuff. Hopefully you will tune in to the next three podcasts and you will get the information that you need and start filling in the gaps that this beginning presentation did not um, completely account for. So thank you so much for listening in. It's my pleasure to be here and to give the information that everybody needs to develop a person centered Disability Lifetime Plan. Thank you so much, and I will talk to you next week. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.